Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. This episode is dedicated to the science behind gluten and brain health. As you may have heard, there's a notion that gluten is bad for our health and especially for our brain. But does that stem from valid scientific sources or is it just a food fashion statement? Dean and I go through a case report of celiac disease, describe what gluten is, the science behind it, and explore the evidence for and against gluten consumption for different populations. But before we jump into the episode, I wanted to quickly let you all know that I'm leading a free five-day Better Brain Nutrition Challenge beginning Saturday, February 4, that will focus on the basics of brain-healthy eating for you and your family. I'll go live each day of the challenge from my kitchen to cook, hopefully alongside you, a brain-healthy breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks so that you can see how delicious and simple healthy nutrition can be. In the meantime, we can have a live Q&A session. I'll go over some myths and misunderstandings in the field of nutrition and teach you some of my favorite tips and tricks for making a delicious meal. I'm doing this challenge because changing our eating habits can be one of the hardest shifts to make in our lifestyle, and I want to help. Not to brag, but as a neurologist, a scientist, and having trained in the culinary arts, I have a unique understanding of what foods are best for our overall health and how to make the most delicious meals with those foods, so even the pickiest of eaters will be surprised at how delicious and easy eating healthy can be. I'd love for you to join me. To learn more and join the free Better Brain Nutrition Challenge, please visit betterbrainnutritionchallenge.com and sign up today. Details will be in the show notes. Okay, let's jump into the episode now. Thank you so much for joining. Today we will talk about gluten and brain health, and I'm really happy that we're dedicating an entire episode on this topic because there seems to be a lot of misinformation. Yeah, and and uh, this topic has taken over the, the the consciousness of our society. I mean, everywhere you go, it's about gluten and gluten free, and um, whether it's valid or not, it must be addressed in a more systematic way than just a movement of social awareness. So we'll approach it both from a scientific way and also from a um, a logical fallacy and and um, you know a psychological perspective of why do we as a society go in a particular direction as far as thoughts are concerned, whether true or not. Um, the valence of thought is as important as the thought itself. I always say that uh, when you overstate a fallacy, or or even if you overstate a truth, it becomes a fallacy, and if you understated a, a truth, it becomes a fallacy. The weight matters. So this topic is about that weight. And I think it's one of the more important concepts that we've spoken about. And with that, we'll start with a case. Let's talk about John, who is a 45-year-old gentleman who has been suffering from severe abdominal pain, bloating, and diarrhea for the past two months. He has also developed some tingling and some memory problems in the last few months. He has been to the doctor multiple times and had a variety of tests done, but the cause of his symptoms has remained elusive. After further investigation, it was determined that John had severe celiac disease. After several stints where the results came back inconclusive and one episode where the doctor said that it was psychosomatic, which essentially means that it was in his head, 
The testing came back with the diagnosis of celiac disease. He was found to have elevated levels of antibodies in his blood, which is indicative of an autoimmune response. Additionally, a biopsy of his small intestine revealed damage to the villi, which are the small little projections of the uh, small intestine, confirming the diagnosis of celiac disease. John's case is particularly severe, and he has been suffering from his symptoms for several months now without any relief. He has lost a significant amount of weight, and his anemia has become so severe that he is at risk of developing other complications. He's now at risk for developing other autoimmune disorders like type 1 diabetes, as well as other conditions such as malabsorption and related issues like osteoporosis. Which is what we usually see with these uh, genetic or uh, autoimmune processes where one system is affected and you see other systems being affected as well. Absolutely. The only treatment for celiac disease is a strict gluten-free diet. This means that John has to avoid all food that contains gluten, including wheat, barley, and rye. And he also has to be very careful to avoid cross-contamination and even trace amounts of gluten that can trigger an autoimmune response. And my understanding is that it, not, it, it doesn't necessarily have to not be in your food. You can't actually use products that have gluten, shampoos and soaps and cosmetics that may have gluten in them. Somebody who has celiac disease has to go to extraordinary lengths to avoid gluten. Um, uh, and that, that's an important point. Um, celiac disease is a real and significant process that can't be taken on at, you know, in a whimsical or in a uh, haphazard way. It has to be taken on uh, in a very systematic and clear way because any amount of gluten can affect the system. And although it might not, the symptoms might not be as great, but uh, it will still affect the system significantly. Absolutely. So his symptoms started improving significantly upon elimination of gluten from his diet. For most people, following a gluten-free diet will heal the damage in the small intestine and it will prevent more damage if they are celiacs, of course. Many people see symptoms improve within days to weeks of, after starting the diet. John's case is a very dramatic example of the severity of celiac disease and the importance of following a strict gluten-free diet. And of course, without this treatment, he's at risk of developing further complications and his quality of life will continue to suffer. So why did we start this conversation with a case study was because uh, we want our listeners to understand that we recognize the importance of this topic, especially for those who are allergic to gluten or have celiac disease. Uh, these individuals need to completely avoid gluten at all costs, but it's also important to know that this group only constitutes less than 1% of the population, um, and statistics show that one in about 133 individuals in the United States are true gluten-sensitive or have celiac disease. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, they have allergies to gluten, not gluten-sensitive, which we will actually Gluten-allergic, yes, exactly. Yeah. And there was some some hard numbers around this condition as well. The, there was a meta-analysis that found that currently, worldwide, the prevalence of celiac disease is 1.4% based on blood tests, and it's 0.7% based on biopsy results. Why is there a discrepancy between blood and biopsy? Yeah, autoimmune disorders have a 
false positive um, ratio as well. There's a lot of times that you see antibodies that are not truly affecting uh, um, and organs. Um, we've seen this in osteoporosis and, and other immune disorders where you see the antibody, but you don't see the disease fully manifest. So there has to be more. The biopsy would, will actually show that the damage is being done. It's not just that the antibody is present, but it's actually attacking tissues or the body is attacking tissues. So there's a disparity between false positive as far as clinical and uh, so that we have to be aware of. And that's true in all autoimmune diseases. Absolutely. Um, all right, so that was 1.4% on blood tests and 0.7% on biopsy. The prevalence of celiac disease, um, as I mentioned earlier, was 0.4%. Okay, so it, it's 0.4% in South America, 0.5% mm -hmm. in Africa and North America, 0.6% of the population in Asia, and 0.8% in Europe. That's pretty low, isn't it? Yeah. It, so, yes, there is such a thing as gluten uh, allergic, and we have to be aware of that population. But as you can see, the numbers are incredibly low when it comes to the celiac disease component, which mm -hmm. is the ones that truly have to avoid um, any trace of uh, gluten. Um, and and there, that's where the truth lies. That's where the valence and weight of the truth lies. Okay. Not the way that we're seeing it across um, the media. But Absolutely. we'll go get into that a little more here. So I think this is a great opportunity for us to kind of take a deep dive into celiac diseases and what it is and what it does to the body. Celiac disease is an autoimmune disorder that affects the digestive system. It is caused by an abnormal immune response to a protein called gluten. And this protein is found in wheat, barley, and rye. Uh, the body's immune system mistakenly attacks the small intestine, and it causes inflammation and damage to the villi, which are finger-like projections that mm -hmm. line the, the inside of small intestine. And it essentially helps absorb nutrients from food. Yeah, and that's the primary area of attack for these um, antibodies. Although now there's evidence that indirectly it can affect central nervous system and other places, but the primary area of attack is uh, these villi. Absolutely, that's a very important point that it affects other structures and systems as well, but primarily it's the GI system. The physiologic mechanism and process of celiac disease involves many steps. Mm -hmm. First, the body's immune system mistakenly identifies gluten as an invader, as a foreign object. And um, essentially, it starts producing antibodies or these soldier cells and chemicals that start attacking it. These antibodies then bind to the gluten molecule, and it triggers an inflammatory response in the small intestine. This inflammation causes the damage in the villi, which can prevent the body from absorbing essential nutrients. And this is why people tend to have symptoms like diarrhea, cramping, severe abdominal pain, sometimes nausea and vomiting as well. I know. Yeah. And, and the autoimmune component is something very interesting that we will actually discuss um, in, in future talks. But it's the body being fooled that a foreign um, antigen, what antigen means it recognizes something on the foreign particle or the foreign particle itself and creates an antibody that also attacks a part of the body. And yeah. this autoimmune process you see in, in multiple sclerosis, you see it in Guillain-Barre syndrome, you see it in so many other diseases um, and uh, even perineoplastic syndromes, which we'll talk about with incredibly interesting 
uh, although sad, uh, manifestations. And this is example of another autoimmune disease where the body mistakes a foreign um, a substance and creates antibodies that also attack the, the body itself as well. Absolutely. During this inflammatory response and during this attack, the body kind of goes into this negative downward spiral where the inflammation actually starts producing or calls for the body to make more antibodies and further damage to the villi, and it causes more inflammation, and it just keeps going and going and going. And, and, this and, and that's usually the pathway of inflammatory um, uh, damage, where it's a forward feedback process. There's more inflammation, more damage, which brings on more inflammation, and, and the system gets out of control, and uh, to the point that, that a lot of these you know, uh, uh, autoimmune processes not only damage the organ that they're attacking, but the whole body in general. Absolutely. All right. So the cycle continues. And like I said earlier, all of the symptoms that we see, whether it's malabsorption, um, uh, the abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea, weight loss, if it continues for a long period of time, fatigue because of lack of nutrients in the body, all of this is as a result of this uh, inflammatory cycle. Um, now, as far as the neurological symptoms are concerned, the most common neurological diseases or um, conditions that are associated with celiac disease are neuropathies, which is damage to the peripheral nerves, ataxia, which means instability or abnormality in movements, um, sometimes even seizures or epilepsy, and dementia and cognitive impairment. Yeah. Now, let's talk about each one of them, if you exactly. don't mind. Exactly. No, no, absolutely. So peripheral neuropathy... It's a very common condition. Well, the reason it's common is because it's the, it's the most common neurological symptom of diabetes, which is uh, incredibly common in our society nowadays. What happens is the nerves and the periphery, be it toes or fingers, are damaged. So people have a loss of sensation, both pain and, uh, and temperature, as well as proprioception and vibration. Those are separate systems. We have five different kinds of, well, I'm simplifying it, five different kinds of nerves in your periphery that give you information as far as pain, sharpness, uh, temperature, uh, proprioception, meaning your limbs know where they are in space, and and uh, vibration, which also is contiguous with the, the proprioception. That's why people who have peripheral nerves, especially of large fibers, which is a particular type, have ataxia or gait abnormalities because they do their their brain is not getting the message as far as where their limbs are, so their legs are going all over the place. And and um, in diabetes, the most common type is axonal, which means not so much proprioception, but pain and temperature and sensation. So they lose the sense of where the foot is, or that's why the damage happens. They don't know the damage is happening, and it continues. And the reason for this in, 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 uh, in celiac, which is seen in about 30% of cases, is multifold. One is direct a damage because of the autoimmune process. But the more common reason is nutrients that are not um, um, uh, that are not consumed because of the loss of villi. Remember that most of the nutrients you, we are consuming or we are, we're taking in, be it B vitamins or uh, other minerals, are through the intestinal system. And when the intestinal system is damaged, you have deficiencies of these, most common of the, which being vitamin B12, uh, B1, niacin, uh, thiamine, and others. And B12 especially has been shown to be very directly correlated with um, uh, peripheral neuropathy and dementia. Right. So the law, the damage to the villi causes um, um, mineral and vitamin deficiencies, which then lead to 
um, neuropathy. By the way, the anemia is as a result of B12 as well. Right, that's and true. So multiple systems that are affected, that's, uh, that's the peripheral neuropathy. And ironically and fortuitously, what we've seen is although in some cases peripheral neuropathy is not treatable, in these kind of cases, once you get rid of the insult, the, the gluten or the damage, you see quite a bit of improvement because now the intestines get, uh, heal and then they start absorbing or you take supplements and things of that nature. All right, and then we have ataxia, which you mentioned earlier, and it's a condition where uh, the body's coordination and balance is affected. And when people have ataxia, they have difficulty walking. Uh, you could actually have ataxia of the voice as well, where your voice is quivering and mm -hmm. you can't really speak properly. Uh, writer's ataxia, so it essentially has to do with the coordination of our limbs. And um, it is estimated that about 10% of people with celiac disease may develop ataxia. Yeah, and ataxia you can also get from cerebellar damage, the, the small brain in the back, which actually tells your limbs where to go. Mm -hmm. But ataxia also happens as a result of peripheral neuropathy, where the large fiber in this case, which is the tells the body where the limb is. And you see in, in the upper extremity, it's called dysmetria where you tell them to touch, you've, you've seen these on, in, in shows and uh, said, touch your, you know, touch my finger, touch your nose, touch my finger. And the hand goes and can't touch the, their nose or the finger. Well, one of the things that, you know, uh, if somebody is driving under the influence of alcohol, yes. you know, police officers or the highway patrol, when they stop you and they make you walk on a straight line, if you can't do that, that's essentially because of ataxia that is caused by alcohol affecting our cerebellum. Exactly, exactly. And 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 same thing with finger to nose. And in, in the lower extremity, they, they call it ataxia. And, and, and that's as a result of, again, the limb not knowing where to go. And, and imagine this continuously. Hmm. Incredible number of uh, falls, imbalance, head traumas because of these kind of things. So, so we see this in um, 10% of celiac disease. All right, and then uh, people could actually have seizures as well, epilepsy, um, and it's estimated that up to 5% of people with celiac disease could develop epilepsy as well. Yeah, epilepsy and, is um, uncontrolled electrical activity of the brain. It can happen anywhere, but right. certain places are more susceptible. Mm -hmm. um, the temporal lobe, which is the sides of the brain, uh, are more susceptible. So you see these kind of epilepsies in, in, in uh, celiac disease. Again, in this case, either directly or indirectly because of uh, nutrient deficiencies, vitamin deficiencies, or direct attack on the, on the central nervous system. Absolutely. All right, and then the condition that you and I uh, deal with, which is dementia and cognitive impairment, um, it, can, uh, it can actually uh, be related to celiac disease. And according to some studies, it's estimated that about 3% of people with celiac disease could develop dementia if they're treat, you know, if they're not treated properly for it or if their um, risk factors are not um, addressed appropriately. Again, the most common reason for this is B12 deficiency. In fact, the one test that we do as a potential reversible cause of, well, in the past they called that reversible. Now we know there's a lot of other reasons, but was B12 deficiency because right. B12 deficiency leads to dementia. I mean, significant protracted uh, B12 deficiency. But um, there could be other reasons as well, like I said, um, um, as a result of other thiamine deficiency and, mm -hmm. and, and other deficiencies that can cause cognitive decline. But we earlier, we spoke about other autoimmune diseases as well. Another autoimmune disease that's often seen with um, celiac is thyroid, you know, thyroid autoimmune diseases. And thyroid deficiency 
can, has been seen with dementia as well. So um, lots of things that can happen with yeah. celiac. So just to summarize, uh, we listed these neurological conditions. As far as the mechanism of damage to the central and the peripheral nervous system in yeah. celiac disease is concerned, it seems like it's multifactorial. It, it could be indirectly because of malabsorption, um, deficiencies of important vitamins and minerals, or it could be a direct attack to the central and the peripheral nervous system, but we're not exactly sure which one takes precedence over the other. It varies from person to person, but the more common reason is usually the indirect, which is malabsorption, because the most common source, the most common place where the attack takes place is the intestinal villi, which is the place where absorption takes place. Yeah, and um, there, there actually has been some studies to look at whether there is direct attack to uh, the central nervous system, and um, it is possible, and we have data that autoimmune response that is triggered by celiac disease could directly attack the cerebellum, yeah. uh, leading to ataxia. And there are some studies that showed that some celiac disease patients have uh, been found to have antibodies to the cerebellum in their body. So there are these particular antibodies that essentially are um, focused uh, that are focused their attack on specific organs and anti-cerebellum antibodies have been found in celiac patients. And and we haven't even covered the entirety of the scope of how this disease can, can manifest, but uh, microbiome is affected significantly. Toxins are produced that can actually then affect the central nervous system as well. And uh, fatty, uh, fatty acid metabolism is affected, so therefore the blood-brain barrier uh, is affected. So the reality is it's a massive and, and comprehensive and multidimensional disease yeah. that affects every system. As most autoimmune conditions are. So it can damage other mm -hmm. organs like liver, pancreas, skin, um, and have been associated with other diseases as well, as part of a symptom of other syndromes as well. All right, so what are some of the um, symptoms? Um, I think, in summary, the symptoms could be moderate or severe. The moderate symptoms of celiac disease are things like iron deficiency anemia, um, sometimes infertility and unexplained infertility, fatigue, bone or joint pain, uh, sometimes depression or anxiety, abdominal bloating and pain, as we mentioned earlier, constipation, diarrhea, itchy skin, mm -hmm. dermatitis, herpetiformis that is also associated with uh, gluten uh, or celiac disease, missed menstrual periods, foul-smelling and fatty stool because of malabsorption, mm -hmm. uh, weight loss, vitamin and mineral deficiencies. These are some of the moderate symptoms. And then the so, severe... Uh, the, the, um, the specific minerals is iron, folate, calcium, and vitamin B12. Exactly. The severe symptoms of celiac disease, um, again, as far as um, conditions go, abdominal pain and bloating is the most common, most common. chronic diarrhea, weight loss, fatigue, um, and tingling and numbness in the legs from the nerve damage that occurs. If celiac disease is found in younger individuals and in adolescents and children, this could actually delay their growth. They, it could delay puberty as well if it's not addressed appropriately. Okay. So that was gluten allergy or celiac disease, which is less than 1% of the population. Now, that couldn't be the entire story of what we're seeing in the market or yeah. in, the, in the population, is it? 
Yeah, I mean, if if this is less than 1%, why are we seeing such ubiquity of marketing around gluten? What's going on? I mean, everywhere we see gluten-free cookies and gluten-free breads and mm -hmm. snacks and uh, gluten-free bread. Everything is gluten-free all of a sudden. If it's yeah. less than 1%, 1 in 133 in the United States, 0.6% on the average throughout the world. I mean, this couldn't be from that because you have more peanut aller peanut allergies than that. And Agree. Yes. You don't see peanut-free everything. Um, uh, so, and, and similar kind of thing. There are a lot of other allergies. So where is this coming from? The massive uh, movement couldn't have arisen from this 1% or less than 1%. And that's where we wanted to kind of talk about yeah. why isn't there the same same kind of talk about shellfish, which is much more common, right? Um, or egg allergies, or not tree nut allergies, yeah. or peanut allergy. Well, but before we get to the why, I think um, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about what gluten is. I think that's a good place yes. because I mean this whole you know universe of marketing is about that one protein gluten yes. so yes. let's describe gluten all right so gluten is a protein uh, that's found in wheat rye barley and some other grains as well and it's responsible for the elastic uh, texture of dough you know uh, if you if you think about pizza pizza crust or if you think about you know some italian breads where that elasticity comes that's actually gluten i actually learned that from you when when uh, when you were making the pizza bread yeah and you made a gluten-free one and then and and i was and asking the what's the difference ones? and and we we felt the difference when we were making it, it was it, almost yeah. like a cookie it was more crunchy it didn't have the elasticity exactly i, I loved it but but still the difference was you could see it. Quite stark, absolutely. Yeah. So it actually helps give bread its too, a chewy texture. Um, and uh, gluten is also used as a stabilizing agent in uh, many um, processed foods. Seitan, you know, the, the protein that a lot of vegetarians mm -hmm. and vegans consume is essentially gluten. It's that chewy protein that is in dough, in flour, but essentially the the carbohydrates have been removed or washed out, and what is left behind is seitan or the gluten. Mm -hmm. Now, um, chemically speaking, gluten is made out of two proteins. These are gliadin and glutenin, and we'll put this information in the show notes for people to actually read about it and if they want to re do more research on it. Gliadin is the protein that gives dough its elasticity, and glutenin helps to give bread its chewy texture. Gluten is found uh, in kamut, in spelt, and we'll put a list of all the different kind of gluten-containing yeah. uh, products in the show notes as well. Sometimes it's also found in oats, although most oats are generally gluten-free. So for people who have celiac disease, they have to make sure that they look at the container on oatmeal or oats and make sure that it's a gluten-free version. Now, obviously, because, you know, the carbohydrates or wheat products are one of the major food groups in our foods, gluten is found in many foods, breads, pastas, cereals, crackers, cookies, cakes, pastries, pizzas, and other processed foods as well. And it, it can also be found in some condiments like soy sauce and some salad dressing and gravies. So and, and as far as drinks are concerned, they can actually be found in beer, malt, and malt vinegar as well. Mm -hmm. So they're everywhere. Let's talk about the difference between gluten allergy and gluten sensitivity because they're two very different things. 
Uh, gluten allergy is an immune system reaction to gluten and what we've just been talking about, the condition that causes all these symptoms. Uh, and when someone actually consumes gluten and they're allergic to it, their body starts creating antibodies and starts attacking the, uh, the tissues. And gluten sensitivity, on the other hand, is actually not an immune system reaction. It's a condition where people start having some symptoms that are similar to gluten allergy, but there's no antibody reaction or the inflammation that comes along with it. Sometimes gluten sensitivity symptoms can, uh, can be very closely related to gluten allergy. People could have bloating, they could have some abdominal pain, they could have some diarrhea, maybe some joint pains, but it's not as exaggerated as celiac patients. The main difference between gluten allergy and gluten sensitivity is that gluten allergy, again, is an immune reaction, while sensitivity is not. And I think this is where it kind of gets confusing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, if it's not antibody, so what's causing it? What it is is so much that the body is not familiar with this product and reacts adversely. There is some inflammation. I mean, it's not at the same level as autoimmune processes. There is some effect on absorption of fluids or transfer of fluids across membranes. So the reaction is not such a massive autoimmune reaction as it is a body kind of rejecting this external product. Right, right. No, you're absolutely right. There is some inflammatory response, but it's not as exaggerated as gluten um, allergy. Um, and we actually have some data that people who are sensitive to gluten, they can have uh, an increase in the production of inflammatory cytokines, which can cause a wide range of symptoms, uh, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, it also can affect our gut microbiome yeah. and cause uh, a level of imbalance, which can lead to digestive issues. Sometimes when people have gluten sensitivity, there can be an overgrowth of certain bacteria in mm -hmm. our gut, which can increase the symptoms of the GI issues. Now, the percentage of people who have gluten sensitivity is probably less than uh, celiac oh, disease. Not, well, altogether between the different kinds of gluten sensitivities, they say about 2%. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not, I wanna make sure that we pull back and don't um, conflate multiple things. There's the wheat allergies and wheat sensitivities and things of that nature, but for gluten specifically, it's at the most 2%. Mm -hmm. So altogether between celiac and gluten, gluten sensitivity, it's 3%. But even within that 2%, it's not a binary thing, all or none. There's a spectrum from very light sensitivity to a little more exaggerated sensitivity. Right, absolutely. So there's a spectrum of, of expression. And I'm glad that you brought up the concept of wheat allergy, which is different from gluten uh, sensitivity and allergy. Um, as far as the numbers go, uh, there was a recent study that showed that a worldwide prevalence of 0.5 to sometimes even 9% of the population, uh, that's the prevalence of wheat allergy. In the United States, it's about 0. 0.4 to 0.5%. Yeah, usually it's less than one, but yeah. Let's talk about why there was a controversy around something that has very specific numbers around it and something that, you know, is not a, um, it's, it's not a conundrum. Like we know what celiac disease is. We know the numbers. We know the numbers for uh, gluten sensitivity. We know the numbers for wheat allergy. 
So why is there such a controversy around gluten and why is everybody calling it the villain of the diet? Mm -hmm. It started, I think, in the early 2000 and with a paper in 2002, a study published in New England Journal of Medicine that suggested a link between gluten and a wide range of health problems. Right, right. So and and uh, that was, of course, there's always, you can always find papers going all the way back to you know, decades ago, but that was where the 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 this new line of of uh, attack on gluten started right and they mentioned things like digestive problems fatigue and depression uh, associated with uh, with gluten and so that's when an interest starting being generated for people to start uh, questioning the uh, you know healthfulness of products that have gluten in them and suddenly you had this anti-gluten movement um, and there were a lot of products that came out saying that gluten-free was the way to go. And there was some mixed messaging. Gluten-free was almost synonymous with healthy. Yeah. So you would have these gluten-free cookies that were not happy. They, they, they had a ton of sugar, they had a ton of coconut oil in them but they were considered to be healthy. And I think some of the remnants of that movement still exists today where people just say, oh, I'm healthy, I'm not eating gluten, but not knowing that gluten-free is not necessarily healthy. Uh, and that's the, what I call the exaggerated anti-X or pro-X effect. Mm -hmm. You put the, put the element in there. The pro-X, let's say pro-coconut uh, oil. All of a sudden, there was a massive wave of marketing around uh, coconut oil. Yeah, yeah. And without any question, without even looking at the data, it was just oh, everywhere. All products, it was it was coconut oil. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank goodness that 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 movement has died died off. Uh, well, for the I most part. I don't know. Well, for the most part, I mean, they <laughs> they never die off completely. Right. Mm -hmm. And then this was a a exaggerated pro X product. Yeah, I, I know one a, product. I yeah. know a lot of friends um, who actually just decided not to eat gluten uh, because of some article that they uh, read or maybe a prominent talking head or, you know, some influencer telling them that gluten is bad. And uh, they completely give up on that. And I think we'll, we'll go into this a little uh, deeper as to why that is. And maybe perhaps it's just the fact that a lot of baked goods, such as bread and cookies and muffins, are not just gluten. They actually come with a lot of other things too. And so when people actually stop eating, say, for example, processed wheat products, uh, white bread, white pasta, and things like that, they feel better. They don't feel bloating, probably because they're just getting rid of that processed aspect of that food instead of just the gluten. Well, there's, yeah, I fully agree with that. I mean, there's m m so much more to it. There's the sunk uh, cost fallacy. They are so invested in this that at this point, to pull back, it's going to be a psychological attack on their judgment. There's going to be a, I mean, all of us suffer from this. By the way, I'm not standing from a, um, you know, tower looking down saying that we all suffer from these fallacies, these logical fallacies and, and biases uh, that, that, that influences us on a daily basis, even when we're aware. In fact, uh, recently there was a study that showed that uh, education doesn't get rid of your biases. It just, in fact, in, in multiple studies show that it just confirms it more and gives you better language to affirm your bias. That's so, so sad. So we have to be so aware right. of our biases. Absolutely. And then there's the sink cost fallacy, sunk cost fallacy, which is if I invested so much 
And then psychologically, I'm going to look bad if I give up. Well, I'm all in now. And we we felt that from some of our friends and family members that when we brought it up, it was almost as if we were attacking their personalities. And all we were saying is like the data. Yeah. Um. And 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 we'll talk about some of the other factors that that affect us. And the reason we're bringing this is not just to attack gluten mm-hmm. or the gluten movement. Not at all. It's just a learning process for all of us. We have no judgment. We well, like I said, we all have to go through this journey of how to distill information, especially as information is becoming more ubiquitously present. But how to look at the data is critical. And where is the our own biases coming from? Where are they coming from? And how are we feeding that machine of bias? Right. Actually, that's a, as important as the gluten um, uh, story. Absolutely. Beautifully stated. Um, so I, I think you brought it up. Let's uh, jump into the science and see what uh, the world of science or you know the publications in the last decade or so have um, said about gluten. Let's actually start with the science supporting uh, the theory that gluten, uh, you know, exacerbates the symptoms of celiac disease. Let's just start with that for now, right? Yeah. Before we go there, I just want to say that that although that paper in New England Journal started the process, there were some other papers as well that kind of alluded to it. That's the nature of when you have hundreds of thousands of papers being published. uh, One paper comes out in in New England Journal with an impact factor of, you know, uh, 30 or 40, and all of a sudden everybody jumps in and the rest are reflection papers and and then small data papers that kind of just confirm the same thing over and over again. But the the strong papers for gluten came all from celiac disease. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the paper by uh, Cadesi in, in uh, 2011, which was titled Cognitive Impairment in Adult Celiac Disease Patients, a Systematic Review. Um, there was the again uh, the same thing in 2013 and 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 15 other papers. Yeah. All of them showed significant effect. Yeah, um, and I will actually read some of the uh, the details of those papers yeah. if if you don't mind. I'm sure Beautiful. the audience doesn't no. mind. <laughs> we'll we'll go through it real quickly. Um, so, one study that was conducted uh, by researchers at uh, a university in Italy found that people with celiac disease. Um, had significantly lower scores on their cognitive tests than those without the disorder. And this was published in the Journal of Neurology in 2011. And they concluded that gluten is linked to cognitive decline in people with celiac disease. There was another study, as you mentioned, Dean, in the Journal of Neuropsychiatric Disease and Treatment in 2013. They found that people with celiac disease had significantly lower scores on tests of executive function, which is the ability to plan, organize, and complete tasks. And they concluded that gluten may be linked to cognitive decline with people with celiac disease. The third one is from uh, Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology in 2014, and they found that people who had celiac disease, again, similarly, had lower scores on their tests of memory and executive function. Then there was a study in the Journal of Neuropsychiatric Diseases that came out in 2015, again, similar uh, theory that people who had celiac disease had lower scores on their memory and executive function. I mean, if you can see, the one common denominator is low scores. N- no, celiac disease. Oh, celiac disease, of course. Yeah, yeah. 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 So the celiac disease is is the common thing, and and these are not the only papers. These were the seminal uh, yeah. papers, but they're multiple common things actually. Yeah. Memory and executive function are affected. Yeah. They had lower scores. The one thing that um, needs to be um, you know, um, expanded on. And I think we could potentially at some other time 
look at their approach and mechanism was, were these individuals treated? Were they actually being very careful about their uh, gluten uh, consumption? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of our listeners, listeners may actually be patients with celiac disease. Absolutely. Does this mean that they're at a higher risk? Uh, from my understanding of the general um, you know, summary of all of this data is if people are very careful and they stay away from gluten, there's no reason for them to have any cognitive decline. But only in patients with celiac disease. Absolutely. Celiac disease patients <clears throat> only. All right. Perfect. So there was that evidence, um, and we will put the references in the show notes. And the reason we kind of highlight those, those are strong data. I right. mean, strong papers and, and reproduced by others. So, right. and, and only in celiac. And, and the reason we say that, yes, you will find other papers that talk about gluten in general population and all that. But we really have difficulty finding data that's strong and reproducible. And, and, and that's, that's the problem. Uh, that, that's the, where the, you know, the rub is. Yes, and a problem for regular people who don't have celiac disease. Correct, exactly. On the contrary... For people who do not have celiac disease, there is a lot of data that shows that they really don't need to cut uh, down their gluten consumption. And the way they've studied it is looking at the consumption of whole grains, which includes wheat, barley, rye, and other gluten-containing whole grains. As a matter of fact, not only is it not bad, it actually is good. It actually is associated with better health outcomes, whether it's cardiovascular disease uh, or you know, uh, brain health outcomes. And we're going to stick to the cognitive outcomes because I think we're going to go very, very long if we talk about cardiovascular disease as well, because there's plenty of data showing that people who consume whole grains on a regular basis have lower risk of coronary artery disease, heart attacks, strokes, cancers. Uh, that you know, beyond cardiovascular disease, cancers as well. Yeah. Yeah. But let's stick to brain health, uh, cognitive decline, and dementia. There's, uh, there's large data that, that comes from very validated population, and here's one of them. Uh, from the nurse's health study, uh, there was a paper that came out uh, that showed that among 13,494 women, participants of the nurse's health study, uh, they were followed for about 8.4 years, and it did not show any association between gluten intake and cognitive score. So they didn't even look at whole grains, they specifically looked at gluten-containing grains, and it did not have any association with cognitive uh, issues, or it did not affect their cognitive scores at all. And the Nurses Health Study has been studied for dementia and cognitive out outcomes significantly for other foods as well. Another study from the Framingham Offspring Cohort, this is a recent study, they analyzed data from 2,958 people. They were followed for an average of 12.6 years, which is a long time, mm -hmm. um, showed that people who consumed, participants who consumed higher amounts of whole grains actually had lower risk of all-cause dementia and Alzheimer's. So those who consumed whole grains actually had lower risk of Alzheimer's disease. In another um, study, one of the largest study of a combined cohort of nurses' health study and health professionals' follow-up study, that spanned 26 years of follow-up and included more than 2 million person years. That's a big study. Mm -hmm. 
um, they found out that there was no association between long-term gluten consumption and the risk of heart disease. And the authors actually discouraged recommending gluten-free diets for people without celiac disease because of the potential harm that a diet without whole grains could cause. It could increase their risk of cardiovascular disease, um, high cholesterol, high diabetes, and in turn have an effect on brain health as well. There have been some dietary patterns that have included whole grains in them, and for brain health, particularly the MIND diet that was conducted in um, Rush University, Dr. Martha Morris, the late Dr. Martha Morris constructed that, and in their 2015 seminal paper, they showed that people who consumed a MIND diet uh, reduced their risk of Alzheimer's disease by 53%. I think our audience is probably sick and tired of me saying this over and over again in different forms, but this study was incredible. And that particular mind dietary pattern recommends eating four to five servings of whole grains a day. Yeah. And so when you have such an enormous portion of your dietary pattern being whole grains, that tells you that gluten is not the enemy anymore. So in summary, when you look at the wider literature, you can see that for those who don't have celiac disease or they don't have gluten sensitivity, there's really no reason for them to go gluten-free. And ostensibly, avoiding gluten-containing whole grains, they tend to be associated with consuming less fiber, which can result in other metabolic abnormalities such as high LDL, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure as well. And besides the fiber, we get so many micronutrients in whole grains. We get so much B-complex vitamins. We get selenium, zinc, magnesium, calcium. It's just an amazing food product that has all of these uh, micronutrients that work synergistically to uh, positively affect our brain and our body as well. So having said that, what's the consensus? Um, the consensus from five of the biggest nutrition organizations um, is uh, the National Association of Nutritional, Nutrition Professionals, NANP. Yeah, you know, to say I, the, uh, I actually wrote these down because yeah. it's difficult to uh, <laughs> remember the acronyms. Really. Yeah. But yeah, the NANP, National yeah. Association for Nutrition Professionals, stated that gluten-free diets can be beneficial for those with celiac disease, gluten sensitivity, or wheat allergies, but that they should not be adopted by those without these conditions. Um, in similar line of thought, the American Nutrition Association, ANA, agrees, noting that gluten-free diets can be beneficial for those with celiac disease, but that they should not be adopted by those without the condition. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, that's an easy one, and mm-hmm. also agrees, uh, noting that gluten-free diets can be beneficial for those with celiac disease, but there's no reason for people to adopt them if they don't have celiac disease. The American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, ASPN, Aspen, same thing. Uh, finally, the American Council on Science and Health states that gluten-free diets can be beneficial for those without celiac, w- sorry, can be beneficial with uh, for those with celiac disease, but they should not be adopted by those without the condition. Yeah, and then for those with sensitivity, they can avoid it, but there are also other ways of actually sensitizing and getting norm used to it, and that, that's a whole different conversation that we can have. But for celiac, which is less than 1%, yes, it should be avoided. But for the rest of the population, uh, we are, we're actually missing out on foods that can be quite beneficial at the public health level. As I mean, we talk about public health over and over again. And often we focus on the minutia, the one thing, the one off, you know, these exaggerated um, 
behaviors or exaggerated uh, diets. Um, um, the the I, I hear the five day fasting, you know, or seven day fasting. I mean, that's not public health. That's somebody who just wants to go through some cleansing, um, soul cleansing, more than physiological cleansing. So, in any case, um, the consensus is for this gluc for the celiac patients, yes, avoid it. But for the rest, it's actually beneficial and and should be addressed in a more complex way. Amazing, and I think um, uh, it's important for people to know that sometimes statements like "just listen to your body" um, and you know "do how you feel" that you know is good but can be dangerous as well. Um, if you feel bloated when you eat, you know, a piece of sourdough bread, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem with the sourdough bread. You have to actually look at the bigger picture and see whether um, you have some conditions that your body is not ready to accept something as, you know, nutritious like a piece of sourdough bread or a piece of whole wheat bread. Um, a lot of people say, I feel very bloated when I eat vegetables or I feel very, very bloated when I eat uh, bread. That may be, and there is some evidence to it, that our gut bacteria and the microbiome hasn't really been used to eating so much fiber. So there are times when you have to introduce things very slowly and gradually. And I know this conversation is beyond the scope of this podcast, and we will definitely bring more GI specialists, board certified GI specialists who can talk to us about, um, you know, customizing our food in a way where our microbiome and our gut starts accepting them, but not getting rid of huge, uh, you know, parts of, of the food. Uh, I'm just going to say this again. But we're not going to get rid of a huge food group uh, just because we don't really feel good about it or we don't feel well after consuming that. Um, so so that's, that's one thing that bothers me at times when people actually eat um, some wheat-containing product and say, this is not for me because I don't feel very good. Um, you know, whole wheats um, and whole grains are very important for um, providing the right kind of an energy for us and all the other nutrients. And it's very important to work closely with a specialist to see if there's some other condition that is causing that disruption. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the reason we're talking about the subject is that the market for gluten-free products has been in the last 10 years has been growing by 20% each year. Fairly soon, all, all the food that will be available will be gluten-free. Without much data that supports it, yet we're losing on products and foods that are incredibly beneficial for our health. Um, and that's, uh, that's troubling. It really it's, is. It really is troubling. And it's troubling at a couple of levels. One is the food itself. We are missing out on foods that are helpful because of fiber, because of nutrients and everything else. And the second reason, which we're going to expand on a little bit now is, what's the psychological process that allows this kind of para-phenomenon of, of data to just break out and take over the market without any significant data support? I yeah. mean, what's going on? What, what's going on in all of us and ourselves for that matter? Right. Um, and that's important for us to discuss in every conversation because if we're not able to help ourselves first, mm -hmm. but also our audience in distilling information, understanding information, truly working with often imperfect data. And the, the imperfect data doesn't mean you don't you throw out the baby with the bathwater, but it means that you assess it for what it is. And and if we can't help with that kind of data data analysis, we really are going from one talk to the next talk to the next talk. Just being, um, you know, talking uh, in a um, in a way that just 
gets emotions going, but doesn't leave a permanent effect. And the permanent effect is the psychological approach we take with data. Right. In fact, if there's anything we want to do as, as neuroscientists, ironically, it's not about neuroscience. It's about our, the psychological phenomenon. Well, we call it neurological. There's, we, we think that psychological is neurological at, at, at its core. The neurological basis of how we deal with information and data is the most important work we do. Um, so that's, uh, that's where we want to talk about. What is the role of marketing in all of this? Yeah, I mean, marketing is a major part of it, isn't it? I mean, look at the growth in the marketing everywhere I we know. go. It's either keto or gluten-free. Exactly. And, and you... neither one of them have strong data. Right. What is it? It's, it's, uh, so one of the fallacies or, or um, psychological phenomenon or marketing phenomenon is called the problem-solution marketing, um, where the problem is created and then, lo and behold, we have the solution for it. Yeah. So if there's no problem... And, and the solution is already known, which is greens. We always often talk about it. If there's one thing we could do in public health, as far as eliminating harm as cigarettes mm-hmm. and alcohol, hopefully. Yeah. And on the addition side, greens. Greens. And absolutely. then beans. Beans. And then legumes. Yes. And then that, and those are not sexy. That's not, that's not really. Imagine telling someone who has invested so much in vitamins and all these biohacking things, and you're sitting in front of them and you're like, just eat some greens and lentils. Yeah. And it doesn't that, sound doesn't, very good. It doesn't really <laughs> feel good. It's got to be this magical thing that somebody extracted this unusual extract from a plant on the side of a hill in an island in the Pacific. Seriously, like most You've of the conversation. The oh, on TV. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. And all of these talking heads, I'm not going to name names and you know make people upset, but all of these people in the world of health and wellness who are just w- w- talking about mechanistic studies of one molecule doing something else to the other molecule and these esoteric conversations that have only been studied in animals or you know in in, in vitro and applying that to public health. That's just it doesn't work. Yeah. And, and, and most of it is because of this problem-solution marketing. Mm. You create a problem, and then you find a solution for it. And that's, that's, uh, that's where it's coming. And this type of marketing is often used to create a sense of urgency. Mm. Yeah. There's something urgent. If you're eating gluten, your brain is being damaged. You're, 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 you're destroying yourself. You sound like those infomercials and the books. It, it, no, I mean, this, this is what I'm language. saying. Exactly, that's the that's language. language. Exactly. Yeah. So... Um, and, and without the sense of urgency, it, the product can't be sold. Right. And what is the product? How could this be a product uh, gluten-free? Well, you create products that are gluten-free and, and you, you create a movement that's gluten-free. Even, even as far as publication, publications that say gluten-free is a lot sexier than a publication that says add greens. <laughs> or the fact that if you add one serving of, heaping serving of greens in your diet every day, your brain can be 11 years younger. Yeah. 11 years. It's not even heaping, Dean. It's just one cup. Really? Yeah. Okay. Just like For, little. Take away the heaping. Just, just a little green. Just a little green. But now this is the, the, um, the marketing, the problem-solution marketing. The other one is with these talking heads that you were talking about, the, yeah. the gish gallop. Whenever you hear people saying, you know, um, don't trust the medical uh, or all version of this, the, don't trust science. Don't trust the establishment. Don't trust the uh, mainstream establishment of science and so on and so forth. Can, can you explain what Gish Gallup means? Yeah, the Gish Gallup uh, phenomenon is uh, these these amazing leaders or talking heads, which are usually very um, um, uh, what do you call it? They, they're 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 great speakers. They mm-hmm. they have a presence. 
they have um, a sense charisma? of power, charisma, all of those terms that we often use. And that's what their marketing tool is. Mm. So in order for them to stand out, they have to separate themselves from others. And the other is the establishment. And they're bringing the unusual, the different. Or what they're bringing is um, fight against a, a, a established system. In this case, the fight against established system is the, the, uh, the truth that says lowering cholesterol is bad for you. No, we have a different way. You can eat liver. Mm -hmm. You can eat organs. You can eat fat. Fat is good for you. This is contrary to the, to, to the establishment. And why is it also attractive? Because it usually confirms the person's bias. Because, you know, if I'm eating meat and, and, and bacon and, and butter, oh, those things I like anyway. And this, this incredibly charismatic, let's use your word, charismatic person is also telling me that this is good. And the establishment is actually wrong. So this is the gishgalop. And the way they usually do it is this fast talk, one fact after the other. Often they're not even connected. It's just um, a statement after statement after statement. You've seen um, uh, some of the people on social media that they attack plants. And it's one attack after another without really data supporting it, mm. but it's quick enough and fast enough and it feels authoritative enough that it must be true. There's no way that this doctor who as an MD could be saying these 10, 15, 12 facts if it wasn't true. And yeah. and that's the gish gallop. And it comes well, from a Unfortunately, person. some MDs also do it. I mean, there's this, I don't know if I should take his name, but there's an MD who actually says that, you know, plants have poison and you have to be on a carnivore diet. And, uh, you know, while you were explaining, I was actually picturing him. You're right. I mean, it's almost a tactic that's used to make the audience doubt the validity of scientific evidence. And he they're, they're so good at persuading them to accept their opinion instead of the evidence. So it's just like this technique where they speak really fast and they don't allow you to think anything. I'm like, who knew? This is what I'm telling you. This this information yeah. is not available to everyone, but I am sacrificing myself and spending energy to get you the true information. Yeah. So believe me. And and sometimes they don't even separate themselves, but the person that's talking to you is that person. So therefore it must be them. Right. Uh, there's a false humility there, but but it's actually not because if you're if you're dissuading the audience from everybody else, who else is left mm. but the talking head in front of you? The other one is the um, lone ranger fallacy. A lone ranger fallacy. Lone, lone ranger fallacy is the one thing, the one unusual. People are uh, more likely to be drawn to a single unusual and often easy solution. Yeah. Have we heard that before? Oh, I, the, the, the carnivore the person, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. the doctor, the carnivore eat, diet. Eat meat. Who doesn't want to eat kale meat? Kale is bad. Know? It has yeah, and the poison. Poison, yeah. Kale is, kale is bad. It has poison and, and eat the bacon. And uh, the other one that was telling us to eat livers. And in one talk, we heard person saying, you know, um, if, you, if, you, if your liver is bad, then you eat liver. Mm -hmm. And if your brain is bad, you eat brain. That sounds simple. Oh, you're I talking about Max Luger? Yeah, 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 that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, on the surface, very, very surface, it sounds logical. Yeah. Brain, therefore you give it brain, but it doesn't take into account that there are things like prion disease. That it doesn't take into account that the fat that you uh, consume ex uh, exogenously, it actually accumulates in, in other places. And none of that is taken. So the lone ranger, lone ranger fallacy is very common. If anything is, seems, well, we've heard it. If it seems too good, then it is too good. So if it's too simple then it is simple. It's not one thing. Even the amazing blueberries, 
are not going to save you if your, the rest of your diet is bad. Right, right. Not yeah. beautiful. Or taking away one thing such as gluten is not going to help you if the rest of your diet is bad. By the way, there is no such thing as uh, gluten deficiency in any other in the other 98% of the population. So most of these, there are a lot of other fallacies, but those are two big ones that the three big ones that that I wanted to kind of highlight as far as what's happening to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we have to be, you know, very aware of this, especially now with AI, with technology, with marketing that actually takes your data and can literally predict your behavior and not only predict your behavior, can direct your behavior because they know that if they hit a particular weakness that they've discovered on 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 your interaction social media 10 times by the 11th time you're going to succumb these systems work so we have to be extra aware of what is consensus when the consensus comes from Harvard Yale Stanford Columbia all these big universities and everybody else unless all of them got together in some island and said we're going to fool people by making them eat gluten and if you believe that then there's nothing i can i can help out with yeah so consensus then uh, statements are are helpful are important. Looking at data that comes from multiple dimensions that are strong data, valid data, and when we talk about validity, how we determine validity is important. And in this case, gluten. Final statement. I think I want to ask you a couple more questions because I. This is so fascinating. Yeah, the yeah, Lone Ranger fallacy and the Gish Gallup and um, the one the one that I wanted you to kind of you know, expand on. And the one that's more commonly understood is also the bandwagon fallacy. Oh, that's so this right. is another fallacy that is similar to what you were talking about, the Lone Ranger fallacy, where the fallacy comes um, when someone assumes that a particular opinion or a belief is correct simply because it's popular. Yes. Be- because it's just widely accepted. And I think we're seeing how this has come into the realm of gluten. You know, it was something that was very unusual, but now everybody and their friend thinks that gluten is bad. So they just kind of just jump on that bandwagon and, and completely avoid it. This one has multiple names, uh, you know, uh, but but the, the gist of it is that, that, that since a lot of people are following it, it must be true. And I, you remember we got in a discussion with somebody who was saying that, oh, but this was going on for a thousand years. So we oh, must, a lot of people we must, that, have, yeah. we must believe it. I was like, if, if the length of time was a measure of validity, and this is going to get some people riled up, but we would still be throwing women into volcanoes to make rain come. And, and because that went on for a while. Or live in caves or, or no, not or, wear shoes. Or got people so that we could read the entrails as far as predicting the future, I don't want to make it so dark, but that that was going on for many, many years. Yeah. Yeah. The length of time does not validity make. What makes validity is validity. Data, repeatable data, not individuals, not even us. I always say, we always say, yeah. challenge us. If we're wrong, we would love to be corrected. But with data, we have, we, we well, we all bias to some extent. But in, in general, we really don't push a particular concept and where we are biased, we say it, but we also say the science, for example, the vegan aspect. Right, yeah. We're vegan for animals and environment, but yet our science is standing on its own merits, and that's why we talk about fish and all of that stuff. Yes. Um, so it's critical for us to kind of recognize these biases, these fallacies, and attack knowledge and information at a time where it's becoming extremely dangerous because information is being manipulated at, at a level 
that humanity has never seen before. So even beyond the thing in itself, even beyond the concept in itself, even beyond the, the, the science that we're arguing in front of us at this moment or any other moment, we all have to get together and work on how do we determine truth. I'm not talking about the deep philosophical um, concept, but the everyday truth. How do we decide that something is true? Where, you know, the, the, that I can rely on it. And that's where we have to learn about the fallacies. We have to learn, learn about biases and hold each other accountable. Um, and gluten was one such topic. Absolutely. Beautifully stated. I think we're going to end this conversation by saying that it is important for people to avoid gluten if they have celiac disease or some level of gluten sensitivity. But for everyone else, it is at best essentially a fashion statement. And at worst, it's a diet dietary restriction that could lead to a lot of health issues, including cognitive health. So there's no reason for us to avoid gluten if we don't have celiac disease. And with that, we uh, thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to joining again next week with another topic. And if you like this podcast episode and if you like our podcast in general, we would so appreciate it if you could take a few moments and give us a review. And the review on Apple Podcasts specifically will help our podcast be disseminated to other people and get access to uh, this resource. So we would really appreciate it. So in that case, if they're giving us a review, we will that will help us with our uh, um, um, uh, different fallacies, such as bandwagon fallacy and Mitch <laughs> Gallup. And yes. so we can we can bias people. No, I'm just kidding. Just, just You'll be uh, able to share all these fine fallacies with everyone else. Hopefully. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day. 